Hey, it's the podcast team here at Foreign Policy. We wanted to share our latest podcast with you once more, Hero, or The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Since we last shared an episode, we've hit the top of the charts, and we're featured in Apple Podcasts' new and noteworthy. If you haven't had a chance to yet, check out and subscribe to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. And here's our host, Rena Nainen, with our latest episode. Data suggests that it will take 100 years to get to gender equality at the rate we're going. And those are the operative words, at the rate we're going. We really need to accelerate our pace. Milan Verveer has been advancing women's rights for a very long time. She was chief of staff to Hillary Clinton when Hillary Clinton was first lady of the White House. And in 2009, President Obama nominated Milan to serve as the first ever U.S. ambassador for global women's issues. She traveled to nearly 60 countries and helped integrate a gender perspective into various foreign policy areas, including trade. Milan thinks to get to gender parity faster, we need to show the economic case for making the world better for women. It's not just the nice thing to do, but it is also the smart and strategic thing. On today's episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, our last episode of the season, we're talking to Ambassador Verveer as well as Anita Bhatia, the Deputy Executive Director of UN Women, two of the most influential women in the world, fighting for global gender equity. They'll reflect on some of the themes we've covered here on the podcast and what they're doing to move these issues forward. I'm Rena Nainen. So before we get into those big picture conversations, I wanted to take a moment to reflect back on some of the issues that we've discussed in our earlier episodes. We looked at an innovative, affordable childcare network in Kenya called Kidogo that's bringing big changes. Policymakers don't make decisions based on their hearts, they make it based on their wallets. And I think if we can start framing this as an economic issue, that childcare will unleash this potential for women to work, we can completely boost the economy of nations. And in Uganda, a household dialogues program helped women not only save money, but also worked with them and their partners to change gender norms within the home. These dialogues have made my marriage become good, and it does help me and my husband work together collaboratively and in making decisions concerning our finances. We also explored ways women can advance economically in India and Nigeria, such as with cooperative businesses. Through the cooperatives, they're going to be able to raise funding, have access to loans, and then become recognized as a commercial entity that can advocate for new support structures. And for bigger changes, so many people pointed to the importance of data, especially in countries like India, where data is the key first step towards better policies. Data is the evidence, really, to showcase what's really happening. A little later in this episode, we'll hear from Anita Bhatia of UN Women. This is part of the United Nations that's dedicated to gender equity and female empowerment. They work with governments, the private sector, and civil society around the world to create better programs and laws for women and girls. Anita Bhatia largely focuses on improving women's financial reality, so we'll hear her ideas on the best ways to advance women economically in just a bit. But first, let's get back to Milan Verveer. After serving her time as the first-ever U.S. ambassador for global women's issues, she's continued to advocate for women around the world. And now she's the executive director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Verveer has truly been a pioneer in this area. 
which wasn't really formally recognized as an important global initiative when she first began working in the government. Take me back to the 1990s. You were chief of staff to First Lady at the time, Hillary Clinton. Where were we in terms of women's issues? Well, the best way to look at it, frankly, is with respect to the fourth UN World Conference that took place in 1995. That conference was all about chiseling women's rights into human rights. International human rights law, for the most part, did not include women's rights issues as something to be protected and to be ensured. Back then, Violence against women was considered, for the most part, a private issue, a cultural matter. It was not viewed as criminal. It was not viewed as something that the states had the obligation to protect their citizens from happening. Issues like girls' education, which we know there's a preponderance of data today that shows how it's one of the best development investments that can be made. There were still large swaths of the world where girls were not in school. Laws were not implemented for the most part to advance women's progress. So there was just a range of issues. And what that conference did was put together by consensus over 180 countries agreeing to a platform for action. And that platform basically said women have a right to economic participation, to political participation, to being free from violence, to getting an education, to having access to health care, to having their rights protected. And we have been on that road. The journey of this podcast, I have come to discover how important data is. Tell me about how back years ago, Madeleine Albright was asking for data on women being collected. What happened? Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State then. She embarked on this journey as well for the benefits of our own national security. It wasn't just an altruistic thing to do. It was really critically important. And we didn't even know then what was the status of girls' education in a given country. Did they have laws against violence against women, for example? Issues like female genital mutilation, other human rights violations. They were not considered violations of human rights by our government, by the State Department. And so Albright really basically cabled our embassies around the world and told them to start collecting this information. You know, we did an episode about the informal workforce, and you have an interesting story about this when you were visiting a politician with First Lady Clinton at the time. Well, you know, a a lot of people, I think, aren't aware that so many women work in what we call the informal workplace. These are the hard jobs around the world, many as farmers, many doing the kinds of things that are so critical, but they don't have any social protections. They're not even counted in the economy of their governments. And you're so right, Rena. We were traveling one day in an African country and traveling with the minister of the economy. And he was opining at great length about the economy of that country. And we were in a van looking out. And as far as we could see, there were women bent over in the fields, often with babies on their backs, 
doing that very hard work of planting or cultivating, essentially getting food on the tables of their own families, but beyond their families, others in the country. And the minister said, well, you know, Mrs. Clinton, the women in this country have no role in the economy. (laughs) And that was a bit much for her to swallow. And she said, you know, sir, if they all stopped working for one day, where would your country be? And where would its economy be? (laughs) And I think it's just an anecdote about just how much this informal sector represents and what we need to be doing to understand better how to close this gap. How do we get government officials like this African minister you mentioned to rethink how vital the informal work sector is? We started to talk about these issues, not just as the right thing to do, clearly the moral imperative, but as the smart and strategic thing to do so that they could understand if they didn't really care about quote unquote women's issues, those marginal issues you can shunt to the side, maybe they could understand in their self-interest what mattered and why it needed to be done. And I'll give you an example. I remember as ambassador traveling to many, many, many countries And at one point, I always tried to meet with the leaders to the extent that that could be arranged. And one leader was just uh, wonderfully gracious to me, said what a pleasure it was for me to come and have this opportunity to understand his country better. But he regretted he didn't have any time to spend with me. But there was this very nice young woman who would be happy to talk to me about what I was interested in. And I said to him, well, sir, I really regret that I won't have a chance to talk to you because I wanted to talk about how you can grow your economy. Uh, And all of a sudden his expression changed and he said, well, maybe I have a few minutes we can talk about that. When you factor in half the population, half the workers, the entrepreneurs, and address some of the needs that they have, it can have tremendously positive outcomes. Working on trade issues, One of them was the Africa Growth Opportunity Act, and that was an opportunity, if you will, for many countries in Africa that had been part of this and continue to be to have greater trade preferences in terms of tariffs when it came to the United States. Women rarely benefited from this program. No serious attempt was made to determine where there are women entrepreneurs across the continent who could not only grow the economies of their countries, grow benefits for themselves, but create more robust trade opportunities. And through this African Women's Enterprise Program, we were able to get them to access the kinds of knowledge the kinds of training that they needed to understand how this worked. And one day there was the ministerial conference was taking place in the United States and we arranged for a panel to talk to this assemblage of ministers from these countries, finance ministers, economics ministers, and there were three women and they told their stories. One story, for example, was by a woman who was a shea nut 
farmer. The women turned the nuts into a butter product, like a salve, a cream. And then they realized this cream had all kinds of possibilities. And this woman talked about how it became a huge spa business. She went from being a shea nut farmer with these trees, with working with other women farmers, to creating a robust business. She sat in front of these ministers and she said to them, gentlemen, I want to tell you, I'm not only contributing to the workers in my business today, and to bettering their lives. We are bettering the economy of our country. And as I speak to you, my spa products are being delivered, are arriving in ports across America. My name's Kurt Jaimungle, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. America. How do you make sure that women like her, who are innovative, entrepreneurial, thinking outside the box, are not outliers, but are the foundation and allowed those opportunities, not just from the outskirts, but from inside? Well, that's that's an excellent question because uh, you might think of her and the other two women on the stage as exceptions. And they should not be exceptions. They are not exceptions as long as these opportunities become available to and the women become aware of the opportunities ahead of them. I once asked her in another forum, I said, how did you ever become this business entrepreneur? I'm not sure I could have done it. And she said to me, I took advantage of every opportunity that came my way. And many of them had to do with training programs that our government and others made possible, that NGOs made possible. In your current role as executive director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security, you helped with the Georgetown Peace and Security Index. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the challenges with trying to get better data? We looked at putting together an index the first ever Women, Peace, and Security Index. It takes into consideration looking at the well-being of women, three dimensions, not one dimension, inclusion. Most indices look at inclusion, which is vitally important. That's education, it's women's political participation, economic participation, etc. But we also factor in justice. What kinds of discrimination do women confront that may undermine their inclusion? And thirdly, we look at security. Do they feel safe in their homes? Are they safe in their communities? A girl can have access to education. She can go to school. But on the way to school or in school, she is violated and the subject of abuse she's not going to be secure and she's not going to stay in school long. So this becomes a comprehensive measurement of the well-being of women. 
Now, what does it have to do with peace and security? What we find is that those countries where these three dimensions, where women are doing well, those countries are far more prosperous, far more viable and vital, whereas the countries at the bottom, and we rank 163 countries, those at the bottom tend to be mired in conflict, tend to be unstable, tend to be extremely fragile. The well-being of women is so important to the future and to the well-being, current and future, of nations. And it's really time we recognize that. That was Milan Verveer. In addition to being the executive director of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, she's also the host of the podcast, Seeking Peace, bringing stories of resilient women and men allies fighting for peace and justice in their communities. Milan has made a career out of making the strategic case for why it's economically smart to invest better in women. Our next guest, Anita Bhatia, has worked on this for a long time and currently has some pretty long job titles. Right now, she's the Deputy Executive Director of UN Women and also the UN's Assistant Secretary General for Resource Management, Sustainability, and Partnerships. She oversees much of UN Women's programming and helps ensure they're properly funded. Before she got to the UN in 2019, she spent the majority of her professional life at international financial institutions like the World Bank, focusing largely on how the private sector could better support women. Both of these experiences have given her an inside look into the systemic problems women face, as well as how to go about creating change. You know, during this podcast, we've explored some of the themes like women's savings groups, cooperatives. What financial inclusion strategies for women do you think really work? I think getting women access to credit remains a challenge. It is remarkable that even after years of decades of successful microfinance practices, we still haven't solved the issue of the missing middle and getting finance to women who are not micro entrepreneurs, but maybe small and medium sized business owners. They struggle to access financing because they are still viewed as big credit risks, even when they are not. So we need to change systems, biases, and attitudes towards women's entrepreneurs. We have been discussing with some governments the need for gender bonds and other such innovative financial instruments that can actually guarantee that resources are given to women and to women friendly and women-focused projects. What are gender bonds? How do you think investing in these bonds could help for women's economic growth? And what gender bonds are is essentially a promise by the government that when it borrows money, it is going to make sure that the underlying portfolio of projects and activities that support that bond issuance are those that have a clear focus on gender. And this is why we're very happy that we have a number of countries that are interested in exploring this within the larger framework of social bonds. UN Women recently had a gender equality forum, and now there's a five-year roadmap to try and accelerate gender equality. There's a lot of these fancy conferences out there. What specifically do you hope will come out of this plan? 
Well, I'm really excited about the Generation Equality Forum, I have to say, because not only was it the largest gathering of its kind on gender in the last 26 years, it's the first time that you've had governments, civil society, private sector, academics, think tanks, other UN agencies, outside UN women, all come together to make commitments around gender equality. Those commitments totaled 40 billion, and we had massive commitments around driving those policies that post-pandemic are really going to be crucial to building back better with women at the center. So for instance, governments committed, like Kenya, for instance, to making real, substantive, visible, and time-bound changes around ending violence against women. It was very powerful to see President Kenyatta on the stage saying, you know, within a year, I'd like to see these very specific changes and these improvements on the issue of violence against women. You had the World Bank stand up and say, we're going to commit to spending $10 billion over the next five years to drive policy changes that will help push gender equality in 12 countries in Africa. Of course, the devil's in the details, and we're really going to have to see how the rubber hits the road. But that's where UN Women comes in, because we will play the function of the glue that holds this process together going forward. From your perspective, Anita, What do you think is the single most urgent priority to advance gender equality? And what is UN Women doing about it? I'm not going to pick only one because I think there are three somewhat connected priorities. The first issue, I think, has got to be ending violence against women. It is an absolute scourge and a a blot on humanity that we still have the rates of violence against women that we do. This is a public health crisis. The Secretary General called it a shadow pandemic, and we have got to get to a place in the world where there is zero tolerance for violence against women. The second is the pandemic has shown that it is absolutely vital to keep women in the labor force and to get women back into the labor force and to make women architects of change. We need to create an architecture of opportunity for women. That means resolving issues around the care economy. It means doing more on social protection. It may mean considering universal basic income. It absolutely means putting women's economic participation at the front and center of recovery plans. And the third issue is women's leadership. It is shocking that in 2021, we still have only 25% of parliamentarians worldwide being women. It is shocking that in 2021, we are still saying things like less than 10% of heads of state or heads of government are women. Last year, when Jane Fraser became the first female to head a major Wall Street bank, of course, we congratulated her. But I have to say, I find myself saying, why on earth are we still saying you are the first person to do X, the first woman to do X in 2021? That's got to change. We have got to make 
the issue of women at the table a key priority of both public policy and of businesses going forward. Anita Bhatia, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. On the very first episode of this podcast, we said we were all about the ways, large and small, women are changing the status quo to improve their lives, their families, and ultimately the world. Anita Bhatia from UN Women and former Ambassador Milan Verveer certainly have influenced the world in large ways. And yet they're humble about how much they individually made a difference. How do you think you have changed U.S. foreign policy to have a greater impact on women's issues? Well, I never like to think that I had uh, such a dispositive influence. It's many people working together. We often do say it takes a village. Uh, But I feel that being able to set that example in ways that were never, you need to do this, never condescending, but always how can we work together to get the kind of outcomes we want for our country and its foreign policy. Throughout this series, we've met many great leaders and innovators who have stood up for women and in many cases achieved remarkable outcomes. But over and over, the message they told us is that while they may have provided a spark, it was a collective action of many that really made the difference. Working together, whether in savings groups or cooperatives or just being collaborative with the government, the private sector, civil society, is the most assured way to affect real change for gender equality. Knowing this means we all have a role to play in fighting for a more just world where the only barriers for women are the limits of our own imaginations. And that does it for this first season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. This is a production of Foreign Policy and supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. Also, you can still sign up to get a policy brief on gender equality. This is content that's normally behind a paywall at Foreign Policy, but we're offering special access to our podcast listeners. It's a great resource for understanding the big picture on what's happening globally to try and tackle gender inequality. You can visit go.foreignpolicy.com backslash recovery. The show is hosted by me, Brina Nainen. Laura Rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella, our editor. Rob Sachs is our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. Thanks, and we hope to be back in your feed sometime soon.